0: Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris ceballero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, once again, it's time to go inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Sabolero, and with me always the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you doing this week?
1: I'm doing well, man. We're uh, I'm, I've been hustling for kilter to kick cancer. Not as not as Urgently as I have in the last couple of years because I have other things in the fire. But uh, um, we're rolling along trying to raise money for cancer research. So the, so.
0: the folks that want to get involved in that Kilted to the Kick Cancer, Kelly, how do they do that?
1: Uh, go to uh, kill to org and click on the donate button. Uh, we have a number of, of fundraising teams uh, trying to uh, uh, raise money for uh, prostate and male-specific cancer research. And uh, each one of those fundraising teams uh, is eligible for a prize package. The top four fundraisers get a uh, package of prizes from the uh, shooting and and outdoors and public safety uh, communities that have uh, donated – stuff and and the uh the donors this year uh get in on the action as well everyone who makes a a donation of ten dollars or more to Kilted to kick cancer can get in on the raffle for a uh for a uh, custom ar-15 so it's pretty cool pretty cool from dreadnought industries and and they're they're making one for us so yeah donate to team ambulance driver on checkout (laughs) but you can donate to any team if you want to make your donation forward your uh your uh, donation receipt to me at Kelly at org, and I'll get you in on the raffle.
0: How cool is that? You know, one of the things yeah. we talked about last year was the whole eating Cheetos naked and donating for that. I think, I think <laughs> our, our listeners spoke and, <laughs> and we're going to protect them from that. But maybe we can, you know, because you did last year that whoever donated, you know, in the, in the, you know, a higher amount, you know, would, uh-huh. you, you know, you'd kind of do a, uh, a something I did the for Charlie's, exactly. I did the you Charlie's did the angels. angels. You did the thing for me where you said I was, you know, the, the best uh, to be end all, beat all. Maybe uh-huh. we can start an auction of uh whatever that number would be um we get our listeners to help out with that that maybe you got to wax a part of your back or something like
1: that yeah so yeah we'll we'll come up with a uh, we'll yeah. come up with a suitable challenge and put it in the show notes That's and right. uh so like and, uh, uh we get above a certain point and i'll do whatever humiliating act really uh, whatever uh, yeah I'll do whatever know. humiliating act that is, that is safe for work and okay. viewing. Okay, thank you very much
0: viewing. for playing it. I can, uh, see, I can just see where this is going to go from the last time. so I, don't I'll, really go I have there no again.
1: shame. I'll, I'll do anything for, for my two favorite charities. So, uh, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. We'll figure out a suitable challenge. And if we get above that threshold, then rock on. I'll do it.
0: You know, Kelly, I think it's time that we're going to head and switch to the guest table. And okay. I think we got a really great show today, and I know I say that all the time, but this one is, uh, I think, really good. We we just have to, our listeners just have to know. I think every show we bring them is great, but I want to go ahead <laughs> and introduce our resident EMS education expert.
2: Oh,
1: okay. all right. Well, well, let's see who it is before. Dan uh, Limmer.
0: I, Dan come on in here.
1: Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Welcome to the show, Dan. I'm uh I'll I'll go with that, Chris. He uh, he he can be our resident EMS educational expert. Uh when I grow up I want to be Dan Limmer, so
2: I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm doing really well. About uh,
0: really, really well. Thank you. And um, so it's always great that you come and visit with us, and uh, you know, things to talk about. And I, you know, I think we got some really great topics that we're going to uh, discuss with you today. But before that, I mean, you know, you've you've been a you know a friend of the show. You've kind of come on a few times, and you know, I'm probably going to hit you up towards the end of the show, maybe to uh, give our listeners again that uh, special on your apps. But before we get there. Okay. What's, what's going on in Lima Creative? Let's uh, let's talk about what's happening there and how you're helping folks prepare for national registry and become the best professionals they can be.
2: That's uh, that's what we do. We have a new product out, EMTreview.com. It's a website but the site is different than a lot of the other subscription websites in that we really attack the national registry problem from multiple sides. Um, you take small tests, then watch a video and see how you understand it. Diagnostic exams, videos, exercises. Um, and this summer we've had a heck of a summer. We've had people three, four, five, even a sixth timer pass the national registry um, using this approach, uh, and we're really uh, psyched about it. And um, also Pearson. Uh, Brady, my publisher, uh, is now distributing apps. So, if uh, any educators listening want to just get some apps when you order your books, you can do that too. It's been quite a year so far for us, and thank you for asking.
0: Yeah, and you know, actually, I'm I'm in the process of uh, getting into the EMS education world again, and certainly Pearson and the Limmer apps are on my radar to use. So, and I gotta I, uh, I gotta thank you for doing that because you really have some great stuff. But anyway, so just really one quick question: when you talk about this EMT review, it, it was very very interesting. You know, where you talk. About the the video and then kind of talking about it, that's kind of bringing the 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 uh,
2: clinical scenario to a new level, isn't it? Well, you know, I think a lot of people read those National Registry questions. There's a maximum of three sentences. There's information on the line and between the lines. And they don't know how to interpret the question. Even great students in class read those questions with some pressure in the exams there and they don't know what to do. So by taking a short quiz and then watching me explain what they should be getting from the videos, I check in with people after they use them and they say, I never looked at a question like that before. And that's when the light comes on and that's when we we do some good. We're also actually a finalist in the um, EMS World Innovation uh, Awards, the Product Awards, So we're very happy to be included in that as well. That's awesome, man. That's really great.
0: And I'd really like to know how this works out. And Maybe you can come back uh, towards the end of the year and we can think about, uh, you know, because I'd really like to examine the, the, you know, how this is growing problem solving and critical thinking skills, which you and I have talked about for a long time. Uh, I think that's a big component missing in EMS education. But, you know, one of the things that I, I really wanted to get into to chat with you, Dan, was, You know, there was a a great, you know, and social media has really uh, given us some things to think about and and really kind of prompt us into going outside the box thinking. And there was a, a great post on your wall that was talking about... You know, the, you know, uh, responding and and taking care of folks that may have DNRs and, you know, and then with the grieving process. And, you know, it really was interesting to read those comments because I don't think, you know, DNR, uh, dealing with DNRs is one of those things that
2: we do well as uh, EMS professionals. And I'd like to get your opinion about that. Oh, I totally agree with that. Not only uh, are we not taught a lot, it's something that's inherently difficult. Quite frankly, I think it's much more difficult than CPR to have to deal with a grieving person. I think that there's that there's a, a feeling if you're not used to it that might make you feel awkward or, or unsure or afraid to to say the wrong thing. But there's a lot of need in the people uh, when you're there. There's a lot of chance to make a difference. Our DNR education and dedication about death follows largely the legal issues about uh, the DNR and then a little bit of denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. But it doesn't really get us into the people sense and the good that we can do. Even when we can't do something for the patient, the family's still there.
1: So, Dan, I have a question for you. What do you do in those situations? And and we don't have enough training in this, and and th- this seems to be a place where most EMS providers fall down because we we're not specifically taught how to deal with the emotional aspects of death and dying and, and consoling family members. What do you do in those situations where the the patient has a DNR but it's not present? Uh, the family can't produce it. They say he's got a living will or a DNR, but they can't produce documentation to that effect. Uh, what do you? How do you handle those kind of
2: situations? yeah and you know, and I think I've even taught people this, and I don't do it anymore we we sense this we sense this urgency that every second we're not doing c p r that we lose a chance for the patient to survive yet yeah, we're looking at a ninety pound cancer patient lying in a hospital bed in the in the living room, so I think we have a false sense of urgency and we get in there and we feel the pressure and we're always given that fallback if you don't know, you've got to start cPR right away and you'd be saving someone to die two days later. Now, we always have the legal stuff in the background that if the patient, you know, doesn't live, you can get sued, but they're dying of cancer anyways. And I think that our tone is wrong the way we teach it because the, the DNR a lot of times isn't going to be there because people don't know. But then resuscitating a person, like I said, and we've all seen, um, Kelly, that 90-pound... Uh, person, they're they're just skin and bones in the hospital bed. And even if you did do CPR, if you got them to live, they're going to die tomorrow. And we don't we don't ever talk about that. That death is is the end of living. It's not something that we can fight against every time. And I think that's got to be part of our our vocabulary in this.
1: Okay, Dan. So follow up. What do we need to do in the education process? Initial education, continue education, whatever to address this with EMTs, teach them how to handle this kind of situation.
2: Yeah, you know, we have these uh, chapters on communication and documentation, and we, we kind of steamroll through those to get to the cool clinical stuff. And, you know, I'm a, I've talked here before, and, you know, I'm a big proponent for more dynamic education and less lecture. And I think if we get people out of their chairs more and either talk in a group activity or do something else in the classroom, then we can give people at least a little practice and a little more knowledge and the basics. You know, this beginning of the EMT curriculum is something that we go through relatively quickly and then airway starts and we get into the clinical stuff and that's all we talk about. Yet, you know, the tragedy of even a pediatric death or or any death really involves this principle and we should be, we should be doing it more in class. Yeah, Dan, I got to tell you,
0: I mean, I I think you hit the nail right on the head. And, and, you know, these are things that when we get out in the field, I mean, we're supposed to, you know, I guess learn as we go. But I think this is a challenge. And one of the things that I would want to see is the fact that I think we need to start doing more clinicals in hospice. And I think we need to really do some clinicals now as we start to get into, you know, nursing management and follow a nurse around a day of how they're, you know, dealing. But there's just so many components of what we're doing missing that, you know, we really need to go back to the drawing board and just create the whole, you know, EMT and paramedic education from from the beginning on learning how to deal with this, you know, this process of DNR. And really, you know, I I guess the question I'm going to pose to you is that, you know, how about when we have a DNR in place, and then now somebody shows it to us, and we're getting ready to respect it, but one family member now tells us, "I don't care what that says. I want you to do everything you can for my family member." And you know, we're we get a little bit frustrated as providers, but you know, we've got a grieving family that we've got to deal with, and
2: I think we forget that sometimes. Well, you certainly can have someone that's in uh, denial. Uh, it's probably more common than we realize. And I would say that, you know, we can blame EMS for not thinking about this, but how many people are suddenly diagnosed with a terminal disease and have never thought about death or arrangements before? As society, we kind of compartmentalize death and hospice off in the corner and it doesn't apply to us, even though we all know it's going to. And I think that it's probably a natural, a natural part of it. And we know that people go through those stages of death and dying. At very different uh, times and and a lot of people say the patient often gets there before the family does the the patient knows it's time to go, but the family doesn't want to let that person go, and there's a lot written on on that so you know really, I think this come down to to communication and and mindset, and really I, I would say again communication you know keeping our cool and being the voice of reason, you are the person that was called to come in and handle this emergency. And the way you handle the emergency might not be CPR. You know, in every scene, a good uh, EMT or paramedic um, has a presence. You know, in police work, we call it a command presence. But in EMS, we have a scene presence. And if you use that presence and you're respectful and firm and people will come to you and they will respect your advice. And I think that we don't often have the confidence to do that in... These situations that happen so uh, surprisingly to the family, they're so emotional, and again, even we can feel awkward. I'm an old street cop, and I've seen more than my share of, of death, but I'll just add that one of the reasons I think that I'm relatively adjusted, some people may argue, is because I never hid from the death. I talked to people, I was straightforward and frank, but polite and respectful, and I asked them questions about the deceased, and I I talked to them, and if we don't make it awkward, and we can talk to people, they will come to us out of whatever they are in, and quite frankly, I think the reason I am still here is because I've made the habit to embrace the concept that they're in grief and try and be there with them, and I think it's really helped me. Yeah, I I would think
0: that that's going to be very, very beneficial. But again, we're not getting this training, and and where are we supposed to learn it? Certainly, in, in initial education, I'm not learning how to deal with a grieving family. I don't remember ever in my career... I can't say that. I guess the, I did, but, uh, you know, it was very few and far between where I, re- I received some training on the grieving process, and, and I was supposed to, you know, now assimilate that into those situations, and that became very difficult. But, you know, how, so how do you handle that? You know, me as the EMS provider, maybe it's a, you know, a basic and a paramedic, or maybe it's, a, you know, two basics or whatever it is that's in the house. And you know we have a family member who's saying, "I don't care what that paper says, do what you got to do." How do we how do we help them? How do we make that situation better for that family? Um, you know, as we're you know figuring out how to take care of that patient.
2: Well, I think that um, a conversation that is straightforward and respectful uh, and human is is the only way to do do it. You know, we worry about saying the wrong thing when there is no right thing to say. It's kind of odd, isn't it? That, you know, we're worried about saying one wrong thing when there's someone lying there uh, pulseless, that's going to change this grieving relative's life. So of course they want this person around more. But if there is a DNR and the patient does appear, you know, terminal and it's the spot and you believe that it's the patient's wish, I would take a few minutes and, and talk to the to the relative just to be sure now a lot of people in this situation say well call medical control and you know that's always a fallback position because that way at least you have a little bit of cya but really anything you're going to do is with the the relative and say that that doing this is not is not a benign process as sick as this person is it can cause you know problems that itself may lead to death doing compressions on this wasted away person and the things that are going to happen to their body and is this d n r really here because it's time? I need you to think about that because you you really can't go back one should do it and and it really may be time and there's a there's a way a straightforwardness that I've been very successful with, and people often do respond to that often by tears and and other things, but they're just not ready and quite frankly, who would be no and especially
0: having' been in that situation you know uh, my my mom passed away, she had cancer and and I didn't know how I was supposed to act. I didn't, know, I didn't know if I was supposed to be angry. I didn't know if I was supposed to you know, be mad at the people who couldn't help her. I, I, I mean, it was, just, it was just a horrible situation. And you know, this happened to me, and I was in my 30s already in EMS for some time. And, and being on the other side of the coin, it, it made it very difficult for me to, to figure out how I was supposed to be in this situation.
2: Yeah, you know, we take our professional hat and we put it on and there may or may not be EMS involved, but when it happens to us, um, it does give us a perspective. I lost both of my parents to uh, cancer and, and relatively quickly. You know, that's the one thing about the DNR at home with the hospital bed and a lot of other things you – you often have the opportunity to process it more. No one's physically going to be ready. It's not like, okay. But there are times that you know people will say that, that he's gone. He's not suffering anymore. And we can acknowledge feelings that come from two ways. Your life is going to change. This person was everything to you, but they were suffering. So you can be glad they're gone and miss him at the same time. But there is no book for this, and everybody handles it differently, and I think that we respect that uh, is really important. But I think we have the potential to be a, a strong and calming and and peaceful and beneficial presence in a way that goes past verifying death to the person that's dying at home in this chronic illness situation. Picture someone that suddenly drops dead of a heart attack when people have no, you know, a PE drops a lot of people as well. Boom, that's sudden. Yeah, no warning, dead. yeah. No chance to prepare, and here there is, uh, and hopefully hospice or other people have been involved but but not always,
0: yeah, and I think we forget to take the family into account when we uh, think about those things
1: okay dan let's let's switch gears for a minute, and uh, i'm sure you've you've read the news stories and and I'm interested in your take on. What we need to do, uh, education-wise, to train our EMTs to deal with these low-scale uh, terrorist events, uh, IEDs, bombings, mass shootings, that sort of thing. Um, what do you think is lacking in our educational process, and and how do we fix it?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No doubt, no doubt, Kelly. And I think it's. Something I've been teaching over the past, you know, six or eight months. I've got a presentation, um, the new scene safety paradigm. And quite frankly, we've been teaching it wrong even before this. You know, any time that we give a response that is without thought, we've we failed. We used to give everybody high flow oxygen. We used to put everybody in a backboard. We used to suction for fifteen seconds. And these hard and fast rules have never been successful. So what we've taught people is. Scene Safe BSI, preferably waving your gloved hands in the air, and that's what we do for scene safety. The problem being is we tell people, if you find it's not safe, don't go in. Don't do anything. But then when someone goes and helps a cop who's wrestling with someone or someone pulls somebody out of a car just before it explodes, we call them heroes, and they've ignored the advice we've given in class. We really give no way to evaluate the danger we had a, a thing up here in Maine, little Saco, Maine, a little bit north of me, and a person goes in the mall, long psych history, and tries to cut the head off a woman in the frozen food aisle. So two EMTs are in there shopping for dinner and are a couple aisles over, while well, bystanders restrain the person and take the knife, and EMS goes over and starts doing care. But the way those EMTs were taught, they should have gone back to the ambulance and waited till the scene was secure. But there's bystanders jumping in, and the and the EMTs are there. So, you know, we're ignoring the fact that we, one, sometimes find ourselves in danger, or two, we may choose to act in spite of the danger, even if we could get away, to help our fellow man or another public safety person. And while I don't believe people should be required, I think we really need to look at scene safety and now say, here's how to evaluate danger. Here's the pipe bomb and the explosion scenario. Here's the, the person in, in Minnesota uh, going to the mall and stabbing people. You're going to be faced, in, I mean, not only the violence, um, Kelly and, and Chris, but we could find ourselves shopping in a mall somewhere where there is some type of mass violence and we don't even teach how to help stop bleeding if we don't have gloves on us. We only teach certain ways of doing things when if I didn't have gloves, but there's somebody bleeding in front of me, I'm still going to try and stop the bleeding. But I bet there's ways that I could keep myself uh, from getting at least grossly contaminated somehow by getting bulky stuff or something. I mean, I think about this a lot. So the nature of the world is is that we have to somehow teach the concept of stratified risk and how to uh, evaluate it. Even if you don't choose to go in, I think it's something that we should teach. Yeah, I got to tell you, man, I I
0: didn't even think about it. I mean, certainly I've been more vigilant and, you know, as a, You know, as a a concealed handgun carry, I've been, you know, taking my protection with me wherever I need to go. And Kelly likes to say the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. But we're not thinking about the delivering of the care if if those situations happen. You know, I think it depends on are we alone? Is our family with us? But I, I do want to push back a little bit on, you know, the comment you made about, you know, that we should be going back to the ambulance. And I want to get your opinion on this. So when we talk about staging because of domestic violence or, you know, because the shooter's still on scene and, you know, go ahead and stage for your protection, you know, sometimes when we think about the, the cops that are enthralled in, in um, fighting with a, an assailant or if we think about the, you know, the scenario you set up at Saco, Maine where, you know, the lady was hurt and the EMT just kind of jumped in there and they shouldn't have – you know they should have went back to the truck as they're trained – Isn't there a difference, though, in preparing for staging that we're given the opportunity to stage and then finding ourselves right in the middle of the danger? Aren't we going to react differently just based on human nature? Well,
2: I I guess first I'd say is I'm not saying I think they should leave. But technically, they are trained to leave. And whether they follow their training or not is, is is a question. I personally believe there's times that a lot of EMTs would choose to take a calculated risk to save. Even the fire service, right? You know, what is it? You you risk a little to save a little. You risk a lot to save a lot. I mean, when you have to make decisions in order to do an interior attack in the fire service, we're putting people at risk. But if we believe there's people trapped and it's doable, we'll try it. I think the same thing goes uh, in EMS is that well, not everyone will choose to, and again, I don't believe they have to, some will. So to that end, I do think that even staging can can fail. People can can find us. People will come to the to the emergency vehicle, and sometimes we certainly can be in that danger and teaching a way to evaluate for danger and then to respond to danger is important. Of course, you know, no one says, gee, I've got an extra 16 hours in my EMT class ever. And, you know, to come up with a good defensive tactics class, and quite frankly, defensive tactics we've learned in police work, um, if they're too complicated, they don't work. When I was in the police academy a long time ago, they taught us these really complicated things. You grab your left hand, or their left hand with your right hand, and you end up just hitting them with a stick or your light. It was just too complicated, right? And so the... The thing is is we have to be practical about it and give good common sense ways that we can do it effective and it's nothing like television you know I think we're all starting that oh we're going you know do what they do on television, and the people on television really can't do what they do on television
1: Dan, you talked about these these. The skill set that's not specifically included in our, our educational guidelines and, and what is lacking, how much hours is that going to add to the curriculum if we build that in? I think we all agree that it needs to be there. How long will an EMT course be uh, once we include all this essential
2: information? Yeah, that's tough when you when you put it in hour wise, you know. And everybody wants more stuff in the Peds. People want more. People want people to come out with a Avoc class and all this other stuff. But I certainly think you're looking at a, at another um, another classroom and a, and a lab session at a minimum. But I'd also say that we often look at this and we do it the way we've always taught, which is lecture and then we do some lab. I say we give it out as problem solving. What if we said to our students, you're in this situation in the mall and a guy has stabbed three people and one guy's got a gusher coming from his neck or from his femoral or something. And how could you stop the bleeding without getting yourself contaminated? And I think we can sometimes put those problems out there and we'd be surprised what the students could answer. And I think that we often also look at things as something, well, we have a class and we have a lab, But that doesn't mean we couldn't do an hour in four or five or three or eight different places in your class and do it as part of rotations in a little bit in your trauma, a little bit in your communications. Uh, And you could probably spread it out. We're too compartmentalized. I think we have to bring some asymmetry into this and let people chew on it at different times uh, in the MT class. But I think that that it certainly will take time. I would vote for it. Um, but anything people can do above that standard scene safe BSI and get people to a, a, a safe but thoughtful approach to danger would certainly get us farther ahead. Yeah,
0: I mean, I I really like that thought of, you know, allowing people the opportunity to kind of use their innovation. And maybe one of the things we do, Dan, with this show is when the show comes out, we'll have the, you know, the powers to be at EMS1 pose that question. You know, the the question that they ask on the podcast is, what do you do? And and let's see what kind of comments that we get from that and uh, see that innovation that those folks have. But I got to tell you. Every time you come on the show, Dan, I mean, we just learn so much. And, and I appreciate the, the time that we share and, the, and the, you know, the, the knowledge and wisdom that you bring. And uh, me, who's been a paramedic for 30 years, everything, you know, it's always a different perspective when we get to visit. And uh, I truly appreciate that.
2: You guys are the best. And I love being, uh, love being here. Uh, you do great stuff.
0: Thanks very much. So just really quick before we get going, um, the things that are going on at Limmer Creative, you know, I've been a fan of the apps and, you know, some of the things a couple years ago, I bought a ton of apps from my folks at, uh, you know, uh, at Christian Hospital where I worked and gave them away as Christmas presents. So what other great things do you have at Limmer that will help the people that are out there? To uh, hone their skills, whether it's getting ready for an exam, whether it's uh, increasing their core knowledge or gaining more confidence, uh, what can they look towards uh, at Limmer Creative?
2: Well, I think think you hit a lot of the things that you can do. We're actually up to 25 apps now, and we've been out for six years. So we've got a lot of of oomph, a lot of credibility uh, behind us. We have an app uh, which I which I believe that uh, you uh, were interested in uh, called STEMI Ready, in which we have 150 12 lead tracings that are for practice, and then a 50 question cath lab challenge where people can go through and say yes I would or no I wouldn't activate the cath lab when looking at a at a 12 lead tracing. Um, Tom uh you know, really the EMS 12 lead guy, put these together. We put it out in an app, and I think the beauty of this is as you can give practice. But then you have a test you can measure. If you're a, a chief or a training officer or a heart association person, you want to. Maybe you're an agency that wants to get heart association designation. This can give you the practice. It can give you some CE, uh, and it's really streetwise and functional and beautifully done by Tom. Um, Stemmy Ready is that app for individuals uh, or agencies. Yeah, and I got to
0: tell you, and what's really great about these apps is that a couple trips to Starbucks and you've paid for your app. And I think that that's really great about it. Dan Limmer, it's always great when you come and visit. Promise us you'll come back before the end of the year and chat with us again.
2: All you've got to do is ask. You guys for the best.
0: Thank you very much. Kelly, I think it's time to put the wraps on another show. I think we had another great one down. We had a visit from our resident edu- EMS education expert, and uh, I think it was a really great show.
1: It was a it was a good show and and now I I mean we suffer on this podcast from an embarrassment of riches. Not only do we have a res- resident smart aleck, you, but we also have two resident educational experts, uh, myself yeah, and uh-huh. and the re- and the man uh-huh. Dan Limber. Uh-huh. Nice He'd to like ride a- on his
0: coattails. Nice to ride that's on right. his coattails. That's right.
1: One day, you know, I'm not the man, but my lips will never be far from the man's butt, and that's, that's right. Dan Limber. The man so, next uh, to the man.
0: The man next to the man. That's right.
1: That's right. So we'd like to thank you for tuning in to Inside EMS. And for myself and co-host Chris Ciballaro, thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for everyone, And we'll catch you guys next week.